chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Our young people are being dismissed for children's church. You must know there are extra cookies left over. (laughs) The word hell is a word that is a shock to hear. Even when I mentioned it a few moments ago before Katie sang... There was this immediate in some of your faces. And it's a testimony to the seriousness of the subject. And one that is in the Bible, therefore we dare not ignore it. I want you to notice Luke chapter 16 and verse number 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. He had the good life, if I can say it that way. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Notice nothing is said about his burial in that first century society and culture. The off-scouring of society were often not given a burial. In fact, this man's body likely, Lazarus' body, was likely thrown on a trash heap if it was in Jerusalem on the outskirts of Jerusalem to decay, to be eaten by worms. But he was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom. His pallbearers... Swing low, sweet chariot, a band of angels are coming for to carry me home. Carried home by angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died, and then we often overread this statement, was buried. This speaks of the respectability of this man standing in society. He was given an honorable burial. He was considered an upstanding man in society. But notice verse number 23, and in hell... He lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivedst thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from hence or thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. 
And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. With that passage of introduction this morning, I'd like to preach a message with this simple and yet blunt title, Jesus and Hell. Jesus and Hell. In last Sunday's message, I made a statement in the court of some messages we considered thoughts on death that I don't like the thought or the reality of hell. You remember my saying that? I don't like it. And many of you, you may not like it either. There are a lot of people that don't like it, but it doesn't change the fact that it is what it is. Okay. I thought about that statement like stuck in my brain the first couple of days of the week. And I thought, you know, if I ever made that statement again, I would either say it differently or I would say it with qualification. Because here's what I want you to understand this morning. Hell is God's creation. And it is a vital subject. Even as it relates to other subjects in the Bible, there are those who debate if angels are only men or male. Are there any female angels? There are those that debate when the church began. There are those that debate when do if dogs are going to be in heaven. Okay. There are all kinds of things that people can debate about the Bible that are of what we might call secondary importance. But let me tell you something. What a person understands the Bible to teach about hell is not of secondary importance. Because everyone's eternity hangs in the balance as it relates to this matter of hell. Three, six, nine, twelve, fifteen, eighteen, twenty-one, twenty-four, twenty-seven, thirty. In those ten seconds, thirty people just entered eternity. Eleven thousand every hour, ninety-five million every year. And according to what this book says. Every one of those 95 million will spend eternity in one of two places, heaven or hell. I want to avoid what we would call the Dante effect, that Roman Catholic theologian of the Middle Ages who I believe uh, envisioned hell in a way that the Bible does not describe in order to cause an effect. There are those also that when it comes to hell, they do so with a vindictive spirit. I do not believe Jesus gave his teaching on hell with a vindictive spirit. Furthermore, as we consider this message this morning and the time that we have, I don't want this to be an info dump. It is overwhelming. I won't say that every question that you've heard a skeptic raise about hell will be answered, but one thing is for sure my goal is, is that we be settled in our hearts as to the reality of it and how the Bible describes it, that it sobers us and that it motivates us. And if you're one who is here this morning and doesn't know Christ as Savior, that you'll understand the mercy tree is available so that you don't have to go to hell. I'll begin with this statement, and it goes contrary to popular wisdom, and that is this. The Lord Jesus Christ loves mankind so much that he explicitly 
and extensively has warned mankind about hell and how to avoid it. Did you notice I said because of his love? Because of his love, he has warned. And I will say this as well, because of his love, he made a way that no one has to go there through faith in him. And so our premise this morning, our proposition is this, is that everything we're going to consider about hell by way of information and the reality of it is provided to us because Jesus Christ loves us. You ever thought about the power of a story? I was uh, interacting with some guys recently and we were talking about facts and information. And the Lord brought an illustration of a story to mind and I shared that. It was amazing how a story can just wake everybody up. I noticed this when I use an illustration in preaching. I can be given theological facts and just really getting into the grammar of everything and I'm thinking, man, this is awesome. And some folks are going... But the minute I bring a story up or I tell an illustration, it's like, bing, back in. Okay. In all seriousness, that's the power of a story. Do you know what Jesus does in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31? He uses a story, get this, to bring all of the theological and Bible facts about a real place called hell to bring them all together. To engage us, to get our attention so that we understand the warning, the reality. I want you to notice just four simple facts about this passage in the time we have. Number one, the author of this story. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, what color is the print that this story is told in? Jesus is the one that told this story. I want you to understand right here at the outset, the author of this story is the Lord Jesus. Do you know that 16 of the 23 times that the word hell is used in the Bible, those times, 16 of them come from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ? 16 of 23 times. In the original, the main word that is translated hell is the Greek word Gehenna. And 11 of the 12 times that Gehenna is used, Jesus is the one speaking it. Jesus minced no words about the reality of hell. In fact, one commentary that I read called Jesus the theologian of the hell, or of hell. In other words, if you want to learn about hell, you better pay attention to what Jesus said. Bertrand Russell, the atheist of the former generation in England, a philosopher, a mathematician, an author, and a hater of all things religion and God, said his reason for rejecting Christ was that Christ believed in hell. Now that's significant because he had the honesty to admit that Jesus believed and taught a literal hell. As opposed to some evangelical Christians nowadays who want to go on a PR campaign and become apologetic for Jesus and try and save him from embarrassment that he really didn't mean hell. as if some who claim to be Christians are on this PR campaign to protect God's reputation and avoid embarrassment. I want you to understand something. That when it comes to what the Bible teaches about hell and the fact that Christ is the one who speaks of it more than anyone else, 
If hell is not for real, then the integrity of Christ is at stake. You say, Pastor, you're getting a little passionate and intense. When you're talking about an eternal hell, it's worth getting passionate about. Okay? Not hateful in a mean sense. The integrity of Christ and the reality of a place called hell are tied inseparably together. The basis of the reality of hell is the reliability of Jesus Christ. I think about the fact that, the, that hell is described as a place of fire. And yet some will say, well, people right now in hell are in a spirit form. So how can it be literal physical fire like we know it? I will just say this. If hell is for real and the fire there is by some called symbolic, remember this, that a symbol is always less than the reality it represents. You get that? A symbol is always less. And I'll say a little bit more about that in the course of the message. Imagine 3 a.m., someone beating on a window or your front door saying, Fire! Fire! It's inconvenient and uncomfortable to get out of bed. If you gather your family out in your front yard, we have some in this auditorium who know the reality of this. You gather your family, you take a head count, make sure everybody's there. And then if it was a neighbor who says, I was just kidding, that's not very funny. But if in fact you see fire coming out of the eaves of your house and smoke billowing out of the windows, you will get on your face and your knees and thank that person that inconvenienced you and made you uncomfortable in the middle of the night to save your life. In spite of the discomfort, the inconvenience, here's the reality as it relates to the author of this story that Jesus tells. The one who originally created a perfect world and made hell for the devil and his demons, the one whose perfect holiness was violated by sin, the one who wept at the intrusion of death as a consequence for sin into his creation is also the one who came to warn us of this place called hell. He's also the one who came to provide the only way out. We can talk about how unjust it seems to make people uncomfortable by believing in a literal hell. I will say this, it is infinitely more unjust to believe in a literal hell and not say anything. Especially as you consider the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is the theologian of hell. Not only must we consider the author of this story, the Lord Jesus Christ, but I want you to notice, number two, the approach of this story. The approach of this story. This story has often been called a parable. Jesus did use parables as a teaching tool. I cringe a bit when I see this story described as a parable. First of all, it's not explicitly called that. Other passages of Scripture, when it is a parable, it is explicitly called a parable. It's not called a parable. And often skeptics have used this argument to attack the reality of hell. 
Let me just say this, as it relates to the parables that Jesus did teach, they were not mythological fairy tales. A parable, by definition, as Jesus used them in Scripture, get this, was always tied to a realistic event in everyday life. Not some kind of fanciful fairy, fairy tale event. And get this, as you think about symbols, again, as you think about symbols... We think about the fire of hell. It did cause and it does cause torment and pain. The Bible makes that clear. And even if something is symbolic, it is representative of a greater reality. Even if it's not physical fire and hell like we know it in our physical world, whatever form of spiritual fire it is, get this, the symbol is nowhere near as great as the reality. But a parable, as Jesus used it as a figure of speech, as a teaching tool, was always portraying a realistic event and was representative of everyday life. But here is something that sets this story apart and I believe moves it out of the potential category of parable into the category of an actual occurrence. And that is this, is that Jesus used two proper names. In no other parable did Jesus refer to anyone by a proper name. He names Lazarus, and he names a known, the most known historical figure in the nation of Israel, Abraham. And he portrays Abraham as speaking and interacting in a way that really happened, not in some kind of fictitious setting. If I can say it this way, this is a very unparabolistic parable, if it's a parable. Jesus very simply, very matter-of-factly moves from one stage of existence in this life to the next stage of existence with both of these men, each of them a single life and experienced in two phases. Without any sensationalism, Jesus demonstrates this really happened. But I want you to notice thirdly, the audience of this story. The audience of this story. Notice if you would verse number 13 in Luke 16. We know from Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 41 that, that uh, those who reject Christ finally in rebellion against him in the final judgments will be sent to hell that God prepared, get this, originally for the devil and his angels, Matthew 26, 41. It's a place, Matthew 26, 41, and verse number 46 as well, it's a place of everlasting punishment, a place of eternal fire. So we know devil and his angels are going to be in hell. And I guarantee if we went around and pulled this room, most of us would say, yeah, there's no trouble with knowing that a guy like Adolf Hitler is going to be in hell or Ted Bundy or people like that outside of their faith in the finished work of Christ. Of course, mass murderers are going to be there. As we look at the rest of Scripture, it's easy for us to create categories, folks. But I want you to notice who Jesus is addressing. He's not addressing Adolf Hitler. 
He is addressing the materialistic, moralistic people of his day, the religious people. Verse number 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. And the Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things, and they derided him. That's the idea they stuck their nose up at him. They didn't like what he said. These are the Pharisees. The same Pharisees who were the the paragon of external religiosity in Jesus' days. The the same Pharisees who in Matthew chapter number 5, when Jesus told his disciples that except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't get into heaven. And the disciples' jaws would have dropped. Because those were the guys who were the example of righteousness and religion and morality. And yet it's these very people that Jesus is addressing on this matter of hell. Verse number 15, and he said unto them, to, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. The things that man puts stock in, morality and materialism and me first, the things that will cause a man in his externalism to be viewed highly by the rest of society, Jesus says those things are an abomination in the sight of God. They gain an individual no acceptance in God's eyes. In fact, those righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Get this. Jesus is saying in the preceding passage as he addresses the audience of this story that he will tell them about the rich man in hell, that we are not judged for what we are thought to be by men and community. We are judged by what we are known to be by God. May I say what we have done with Jesus Christ. I'm struck by the fact that this rich man from hell, verse number 24, he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. He was a man of Jewish descent, a man of morality, a man of materialism. Remember that in that Old Testament economy, many times those Jews would mistake material prosperity for the blessing of God. And so they would look, have looked at this poor man as being cursed by God. But I want you to notice a theme in the book of Luke that gets us to thinking. Go back, if you would, to Luke chapter number 3. Here is a sermon preached by John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm saying this all in the context of that rich man from hell calling Abraham, Father Abraham, in his appeal, if you would, his plea. Notice, if you would, John the Baptist, Luke chapter 3 and verse number 8. Bring forth their... Let's go back to verse number 7. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers. Boy, that's a way to start a message. Talk about uh, winning friends and influencing people. O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say, notice this, and begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. He's saying to these Jews and to this Jewish man in particular, don't claim your Jewish ethnicity as a ticket out of hell. That's not what helps a person avoid hell. Your religion, your ethnicity, your morality, your money, none of that, none of that is what keeps a person out of hell. We know that the devil and his angels are going to be there. We can even look at passages of Scripture like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 that talk about fornicators and adulterers and rapists and homosexuals and people like that who don't repent being in hell. But I want you to notice a final list. Keep your hand here and look at Revelation chapter number 21. Revelation chapter 21, a final list of those who will be in hell and who will not be in heaven is given. Revelation chapter 21 and verse number 8. But the fearful and unbelieving, that's a different list than most men would make. We would say, sure, the rapist. Sure, the mass murderer. Sure, the pervert, the child molester, the Adolf Hitler, the Mao Zedong. Sure, those guys. But Jesus starts his list in Revelation 21 and verse number 8 with the fearful. Those who will not humble themselves before God and men because they're fearful of what people will think of them or how it will affect their reputation. The unbelieving... Those who refuse to believe what God has clearly taught in His Word. The fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The audience of this story were not the offscouring of Jesus' day, but the best of society. Jesus' day. We're just as much in danger of hell as any other Christ rejecter. Lazarus' name is an equivalent, a New Testament equivalent of the Jewish name Eliezer. It's the third most common name used in the day that Jesus lived. The name means helped by God. Let me tell you, the only way you're going to get out of hell and into heaven is to get the help of God. Though we're not given all the details of it, it's obvious that Lazarus was a man of faith. It's significant to me that Abraham, who is the man that it was said in Scripture that he believed God, and it was counted to him for what? Righteousness. Is the man who's representative of the one into whose bosom Lazarus was received. Symbolic in the best sense of the word. Symbolic that Lazarus was a man of faith in the word of God and had been made righteous by God so that he could have heaven. Okay. William MacDonald, the commentator, said this, it's better to beg bread on earth than to beg water from hell. I think about what James said that the poor of this world are the ones, though, who when they've trusted Christ are the ones who are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which God's promised to those that love him. 
so we think of the author of this story, and it demonstrates to us hell is real. We think of the approach of this story, and we understand that Jesus is not just telling a fairy tale. He would never do that. It would violate his integrity. He's not crying wolf or fire where there is no fire. Jesus doesn't joke around like that. The audience of this story is not just the people we think are going to hell, but even the best of people who have rejected Christ. And I want you to consider in the remainder of our time this morning what I call the apologetics of this story. The apologetics of this story. When we use the term apologetics, we talk about giving good answer to questions. When we use the term apologetics, we talk about defense against objections. How many of you know there are lots of objections against hell? There are a lot of people who are Christians who object to the Bible's teaching about hell. But it's significant to me in a single story how nearly everything as far as a characteristic of hell and even an answer to the common objections about hell, everything is in this story. I'm going to move rapid fire through this. And it might feel a little bit like a fire hydrant. Thank God for technology where we can record this and go back and watch it. Review. By the way, this week I have read all or part of four good books on hell. So my biggest struggle in coming this morning is what not to say out of all that could be said. And to do so, get this, with a burden of helping us to understand that this is for real. But no one here has to go there. Okay. As we think about the apologetics of this story, two subpoints. First of all, the nature of hell. It's characterization, what it is. I've already touched on this. As we think about the nature of hell, we understand from the Bible... Matthew 25, 41, and Luke 16 and verse number 26, that hell was created by God for the devil and his angels. And access to it is controlled by God. Notice, if you would, in our text, verse number 26, and beside all this, Abraham speaking to the rich man, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed. It's what's called a divine passive and it's a tool in the scripture, a technical tool in the scripture that speaks of something that God did that man can't change. Okay. So here's a great gulf fixed. God controls the access. Now let me say this, and this is where sometimes I think preachers go to the extreme and actually complicate the issue. And I want to be careful saying this because realities like hell should make us passionate. But when a man uses the preaching of hell to give vent to an authority trip or some kind of prideful motivation, he is misusing a very serious doctrine. Okay. When I hear guys get up and say, you're going to bust hell wide open, I cringe. Does God send people to hell? Yes, he does. But God sends people to hell like a judge who sentences a criminal to prison for a crime that criminal chose to commit. Prison is the consequence of criminal choice. Hell is the consequence of the choice to reject Christ's offer of salvation. 
As we think about the nature of hell, I would also say this. Hell is a literal place. The rich man even says this. The Bible says in hell, he lift up his eyes. All of the terminology of hell being a real location are used in this passage of Scripture. Notice this. He also begs that Lazarus go to his brothers, verse number 28, lest they also come into this place of torment. Now the question that some ask is, where is hell located? I like what one early church father said or preacher said in the third or fourth century, I believe it was, maybe the second century. He said, our greatest concern about hell should not be its location, but escaping it wherever it's located. It's a literal place. It is a place of torment. The word torment is a word that means pain of every kind. Mental, emotional, physical. And what's interesting too is even though people in hell now are in a spirit form, there is a day coming when the resurrection takes place that they will be reunited with a body and that spirit and body reunited will be cast eternally into the lake of fire. It is a place of consciousness. As we look at Jesus' description, we see the rich man seeing. We see him or hear of him feeling. He is crying out. There is recognition. He recognizes Lazarus from his life on earth. And this one gets me. This would have taken place 2,000 years after Abraham lived. They didn't have pictures of Abraham, and yet this man somehow knew and recognized Abraham. It's almost the sense as if the perception will be heightened. It is a place of memory. He thinks of his five brothers. They don't want to come here. It's a place of fire and flame. We've already talked about the connection between symbolism and reality. Liberals have tried to say, well, that's a symbolic fire, as if to tone down the severity of hell. In fact, symbols always represent something greater. The Bible clearly says, and I will not mince any words as much as it may want to catch in my throat, hell is forever. There's no passage out. It's interesting to me, too, When Abraham says, there's no passage over this great gulf that God has fixed. There's no coming and going, if you would. It's interesting to me, of all the things that the rich man says, he never once asks to get out. It's as if he knew this is eternal. I will say this as well. Hell is just. It is just. Jesus speaks to that. He tells the rich man, you in your lifetime received good and Lazarus evil and now justice is being preserved. 
He even says, the rich man does of his brothers, if they hear about this place, if one come to them from the dead, they will repent. Do you know what he's doing? He is recognizing, the rich man is recognizing that he didn't repent and that that's the way to escape coming to hell. Repentance. So the apologetics of this story, we think of the nature of hell, but then lastly, I would have us to notice that there are false notions about hell that are debunked. False notions about hell that this passage debunks. The false notion that hell is temporary. We've already spoken to that a bit. Hell is not temporary, even though there are men that say it, and the rich man understood that through Abraham's word. No passage, no plea. Somebody might say it seems disproportionate eternity in hell for a short-term life. Can I have have us to look at it another way? If a person has lived their whole life without a relationship or concern for a relationship with an eternal God, what makes them think that all of a sudden, once they're in hell, they're going to desire a relationship with an eternal God anymore? I found an interesting fact. The modern view regarding how people want to die. If I were to ask all of us in this room, how do you want to die? Probably the majority of us are going to say, quick, in my sleep. Right? Real fast, just like that. But do you know that in the Middle Ages, that was the exact opposite? People wanted a longer lingering death, so they had time to prepare. As a matter of fact, armies in the Middle Ages debated the morality of using an ambush against your enemy because it wasn't fair to give them an opportunity or to withhold from them an opportunity to prepare to meet God. Let me just tell you something. No one knows when you're going to die. So be ye also ready. And I'm quoting Jesus. I'll say a little bit more about this in a moment. But the modern false notion that hell is temporary, this passage of Scripture debunks that. The modern false notion that hell is reformatory and not retributive. In other words, it's a place where, as the Roman Catholics teach, there's a purgatory where you can get your soul cleansed. And then if your loved ones pray enough, give enough, you'll get out of purgatory after your soul is further cleansed. You know what I notice about this man? He is manifesting the same sins in hell and attitudes in hell as he did when he wasn't in hell. He's got a condescending, prideful attitude towards Lazarus. Send him to do this. Send him to do that. He demonstrates unbelief about the Bible. Here is a man in hell. And he says, the Bible's not enough to warn people about it. He's still demonstrating unbelief. He's still demonstrating his own self-centered desire for comfort. He's in hell saying, I need a drop of water on my tongue. You know what I want to say? You got bigger things to be worrying about than that. 
It's not reformation. And here's a serious theological issue. If anybody views hell as reformation with a second chance after it, then you undermine the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross. Because you make hell a part of salvation through its purging work. That's not the purpose of hell. Let me tell you something. That mercy tree is the only way to escape hell. And it is sufficient in and of itself. The blood that flowed from the veins of the Lord Jesus Christ as he paid a sin debt that none of us could pay was sufficient. And the doctrine of the purgatory of hell has actually damned men further. There are those in a false notion say that hell is a mentality. It's a state of mind. Then answer me, why is this man in such pain? There are those that speak of hell being difficulty that a person faces on earth. I've heard people say this after a particularly difficult circumstance. Well, I did my hell on earth. First of all, hell's a completely different location than earth. And I'm not in any way minimizing difficult circumstances. There are those who have the false notion that hell is mythology or theory. And again, I say, if it is, then you've undermined the integrity of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. There are those that say that hell is a party. ACDC and other rock and roll groups can write songs about it. And noted atheists can say that, that the interesting people of this world, the renegades of this world, the fun people of this world go to hell. It's interesting, that's not the perspective the rich man had. In fact, those closest to him in this life, he didn't want them to come there. Hell is no party. There are those that say that hell is a liability to the character of God. And they'll ask a shallow question like, how can a loving God send someone to hell? I say this, if your view of love is sentimental and shallow like our world often describes, then maybe. But I want you to understand something. God is love. Love is not God. God defines love. And he is not defined in his love by man's shallow, tepid, sentimental views of love. All of his attributes are connected. Get this. His love is holy love. His love is just love. His love is righteous love. Many times people that ask that question, how could a loving God send someone to hell, do so on the false supposition that love and hate are exclusive from one another. But love and hate are not exclusive. It's very easy to understand how if I love certain things, I will hate other things. Because God is love, he hates sin. He hates sin because of its attack on his image bearers, you and me. 
He hates sin because it so deceives and engrips some that they rebel against him to finality. One man said this, hell is God's no, his final no to sin in those who choose it. It's as if he says enough, no more. Those who ask the question, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? Maybe the better question is this, how can a God of holiness let anyone into heaven? So the false notion that hell is a liability, an attack on the character of God as it relates to his love. There are others who think it's a liability as it relates to God's justice, that it's disproportionate. Let me just mention two things about this, and then I need to bring this to a conclusion. We're going to go just a little longer today, but I'm, I, I have a conclusion in my notes. I want you to notice. First, as we think about hell being a just expression of the character of our God against sin and his hatred of sin and the consequence of sin, I say this. Man, skewed as we are, has a sense of justice. Where does that originate? Where does our sense of justice come from? Can I tell you biblically where it comes from? We are made in the image of God. And as skewed as it may be because of our being fallen sinful creatures, that that. Residue, if you would, of his image still remains within us. Hell is God's final answer to all injustices. That's why, in a certain sense, hell becomes a doctrine of hope to those who've experienced grievous injustices in life. What happens when you think of someone molesting a child and getting away with it? Do you just say, well, live and let live? Do you just think, well, that's just the way some people are? Do you find toleration in your heart for that? No. Better not. Something raises up within you. You know where that comes from? It comes from God. What about a serial rapist, a murderer, a pervert, porn kings? propagate their filth and objectify some man's little girl. I'm telling you what, if something doesn't happen inside of you, that is a trouble. When you hear something like that, it's a sense of justice. It's that sense of justice within us as a reflection of our Creator's perfect justice, okay, which causes us to get upset in our current culture when district attorneys... And prosecuting attorneys and judges let these people back on the streets. Are you with me? Okay. Where does that come from? It comes from God. And, and we may not understand all of the infant, in, ins and outs, but I want you to get something. Hell is just. We may get all the final answers taken care of when we get to heaven, but... There's enough information in the Bible for us to know that hell is not a violation of our God's justice. Nor is it a violation of his love. Secondly, many times the, the reason people choke on hell 
and they question God's justice is that they fail to realize that our view of sin and its consequences is warped too. Okay, case in point, and I got this from the author of one of the books that I studied for the message. Don't worry, my taking my watch off doesn't mean I'm adding another... Okay, I'm, the, the conclu- I'm on the same page as the conclusion. Okay. I'm going to describe something to you that is a scenario that is not far-fetched. In fact, it happens. Nobody in here is going to deny it. You can have a group of yuppies, as they're called, young urban prof- professionals. Let me put two Ps in there. Young urban progressive professionals. Meet in a cafe in New York City, a cafe in Asheville, and maybe even right here in the Carolinas. Down the mountain from Asheville. And in a table conversation over lunch, one of those yuppies can say, I had an abortion this week. And you know what they're going to get? Affirmation. That was a good life choice for you. Nothing to hold you back. Another at that table could sit there and begin bragging about their hooking up on the dating scene, going from bed to bed to bed in fornication. And everybody would listen like, that's what we do. Another could profess I think I'm homosexual. And you know what? Mostly, most likely, it's going to be affirmation at that table. But you let one of those people at that table light up a cigarette and see what happens. And people in that restaurant start to go ballistic over a cigarette getting lit up. They just sat at the table and all of them were just fine with murdering a baby and committing fornication and going against God's natural design for man and woman. That's all okay, but don't dare light up a cigarette in a restaurant. Do you know what that tells me right there? That very realistic scenario tells me that man is not an accurate judge of sin. I hear people speak about the eternality of hell. You know what they sound? They sound like a murderer who said, well, why should I have to spend life in prison? I only committed murder for 30 seconds. Get this, get this. The standard of the crime and the consequence is not determined subjectively by the one who committed it but it is considered in relation to the one who was wronged. And when you and I sin, we sin against an infinite God. My brain is not big enough to fully comprehend how it is, okay, how it is that sin in finite time against an infinite God, okay, Yields an infinite penalty for the one who rejects Christ. But I do know this. 
the work of Christ on the cross was the infinite supply for the infinite sin of man against an infinite God. So that a man can avoid an eternal and an infinite hell. It's that mercy tree. Now I'm at my conclusion. I propose, as we conclude, that when man is seeking answers to his questions about God's love and the fairness and the justice of God and hell, that looking at hell to answer the question about God's love and looking at hell to answer the question about fairness or justice is not the first place that any of us should be looking. Though I believe, and we won't get into all the theological ins and outs of this, I believe that there are demonstrations of the love of God even as it relates to hell. Let me ask you something. If we've got child sex offender registries, if you know that there is one loose on your street, are you going to take precautions to protect your children? Better believe it. That's why God says about heaven, nothing that defiles will ever enter in there. Okay. Let me get back on track here to conclude. I believe we look at hell to answer the question about how could a God of love do that, and that doesn't seem fair or just. We're looking at the wrong place. Let me tell you where you need to look if you want to find out about the love of God. It's at an old rugged cross. You need to look to the cross, not just for understanding God's love, but for understanding God's justice. Can I tell you something? From a human perspective and from any perspective, it's not fair that we are saved. It's more than fair that any of us are saved. And Jesus Christ satisfied the justice of God and demonstrated the love of God all in one perfect work on an old rugged cross. We want to know how serious hell is. Just look at the cross. That's the price that had to be paid so nobody had to go there. It tells us how much he loves us, how just God is. And get this, when we soften the doctrine of hell, it trivializes the cross. If hell's not as bad as the Bible describes it to be, then what's the point of the cross? So if you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior, I want to tell you with joy and love in my heart as a representative of Jesus Christ, you don't have to go there. If you do go there, it will be because you chose to go there. Because you rejected what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago on a cross. And to those of us who know Christ as Savior, my admonition to us is twofold. Number one, don't be embarrassed to what Jesus clearly spoke of in the book. This has been a challenge to me. I don't like offending people. 
I don't. I'd rather, my dad used to say, I'd rather six thugs get me up, beat me up with a two by four. <laughs> I don't like offending people. I'll tell you this, if the choice is offending people over speaking the truth of God in love versus offending God, I know which course I have to take. We know which course we have to take. Let's not be embarrassed. And then let's use every means that God has given to us to point people to Christ and the cross and away from hell. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his clarity about hell. And I thank you for his cross that is the way out of hell. We must needs go home by the way of the cross, the song said as we began the service. And now we're about to close this service with at the cross, at the cross, I first saw the light. And the burden of my heart was rolled away. And Father, I ask if there's one here this morning that does not have the assurance of their salvation, they don't know for sure that they're going to heaven. I pray, God, that they would recognize today is the day of salvation. And before they leave this building, this property today, they can have assurance of not having to go to hell, but having a secure home reservation in heaven because of Jesus and what he did for them. My simple faith and dependence in the finished work of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray if there's one here today who's got doubts or knows for sure at this moment that they're not going to heaven, that today would be the day of salvation for them. And then for believers, that we would be all the more serious about the reality of this teaching and this place. I pray these things in Christ's name.